0: I'm on a r-
1: Live from Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm Sean McCraney, your host, and uh, let's open up with a word of prayer. Father, we seek you and love you. We seek your spirit and thank you for it. Grateful for loving us so much you gave us your only begotten son. And we pray that you'll help us to discover uh, deeper and more meaningful ways to know you and your son. In Jesus' name, amen. A lot going on, but the premiere... Announcement tonight is one of our staff, longtime staff members, uh, dedicated many hours and years, along with uh, others, turned 63 today. She doesn't look a day over 50. She doesn't look a day over 45, really. She won't come on this camera. I invited her because she says too many men will be hitting on her, and she's a married woman. But her name is Linda Cassidy, and so we all sang happy birthday to Linda. There's, there's listen. Typically not celebration, uh, celebrators of uh, the birthday holiday, but with Linda, you know, is a great exception. Also, just to let you know, uh, announcement: Sunday, April 3rd, 4 p.m. here at the campus studio. We're gonna be having a meeting. Why? Because we're gonna be putting on a play in fall. And We're looking for people who want to volunteer and participate behind the scenes, uh, in the scenes, whatever it is, show up, and we're going to talk about what it's about. It's a Christian play, so to speak. It talks about Christian things, uh, but not in the typical sense. So show up there, and uh, we'd love to have you, and we're just getting that out so people can participate. Additionally, very excited today, Derek and Danita drove up with boxes of books, our newest book out, it's our fifth book, our fourth book printed, and it is called Knife to a Gunfight, Misinterpreting the Purpose and Place of the New Testament. And uh, of all the books that we've been able to put out, I am especially uh, happy for this book because I think it offers a solution to a problem uh, that has long existed within the body. And uh, I think it offers a viable solution. So, Knife to a Gunfight will be available in the following week online at www.hotm.tv. And uh, I think you can pick that up for $12. Now, uh, having said that, I want to say something that I hate to talk about, but I have learned that letting people know uh, in on needs goes a long way to getting them met in ministry. Uh, We are not a wealthy ministry. I was at the hospital not long ago visiting a man, and while visiting him, there was another person there, they're Christians, I've known for a long time, he pulled out a uh, 10, and I refused to take it, and he pushed and pushed, and he said, "And I just said, look, I don't want to take money for visiting somebody in the hospital, and he said, well, you can do that because Derek's a multimillionaire, and uh, Derek just turned around and looked at me. <laughs> Now, for those of you who know, Derek and Danita are our partners in ministry, and they do a heck of a lot in addition to running the books and supporting us financially as they have for years, as many others do, Uh, uh, but they're not George Soros, and uh, is that his name? And uh, they can only do so much physically and financially. They have a lot of other uh, ministries and things they're involved in in the community that they support, and so... uh, the, the, Webster, the Websters have greatly blessed the ministry as have other volunteers, but they can't bear the, the load alone. We need others. Rumors get so nasty. So since we began about 10 years ago, we've had, we've had to battle this uh, overbearing myth that we are wealthy and rich through some means or another. I'm wealthy or Derek is wealthy, or we're on television, so we all must be wealthy and or we're on, you know whatever. So uh, we are rich. We are rich in the blessings of the Lord. And the ministry has been abundantly blessed. Our families have been blessed. And I openly admit that he's taken great care of us. But don't take this wrong. We struggle almost every month to make ends meet. And in the last two years, we've lost 50% of the former support that we had. When I started questioning, just openly saying, I'm not sure I understand or believe this. And so I bring this up here in connection with introducing our newest book. The reason is we write, we print, we distribute these books freely to anyone who cannot afford them, and that will not change. And to people who are involved in the ministry, we give them out. uh, And then we sell the rest at what we feel is a reasonable price. If you can afford the newest book, uh, we hope you'll buy it. Um, and not only to help us make ends meet, but to educate and see what the points are in the book, probably more importantly. But if you can't afford it, we'll give it to you in his name and cause. Understand also, we don't, and we don't talk about this much, we don't want any financial support from someone who doesn't have a job or someone who's struggling to make ends meet or an elderly person or somebody on a limited fixed income. And, and, And never... I don't believe, uh, taking the scripture contextually, we could justify that. So, and we don't believe in tithes or mandatory giving, but we appreciate those who are in a position and led to support us. And I just bring it out in connection with the sale of the book, because uh, typically, for, as if history will repeat itself, there are a lot of people who take advantage of the free offer. And I'm just telling you, if you can afford the uh, 12 dollars uh, and you're in a position and want it, then great. If not, then don't worry about it. All right, got an email here from Cheo. He said, Sean, you said on the air, God is from above and man is from below. That was quoting Jesus. Uh, I am from above, you are from beneath. My question is, where is Satan from? And I guess I would just say, apparently right between the two. Uh, uh, He started off above and he ended up far below. So uh, best I can do with that. And with that, how about a moment from the word?
0: And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw and behold a white horse.
1: In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 17 through 24, the Apostle Peter writes: Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to uh, the good and gentle, but also to the froward, is what the King James says. For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it, if, when you be buffeted for your faults, you take it patiently? But if, when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable to God. For even hereunto you are called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again, when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously, who his own self bare sins and his own body on a tree that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you are healed. Go back to verse 17 with me, and let's kind of break this down. Peter starts off, and he says something interesting. He says, honor all men. This advice uh, I have learned through trial and error uh, to appreciate. Um, Honor all men. Hand in hand with the idea that it is the goodness of God that leads people to repentance. If we have the attitude that we will honor, show respect to all people, all people, the likelihood that they will glorify Christ in the future appears much greater to me. When I was LDS, I used to only honor those who were interested in becoming LDS or the LDS people themselves. And when I was an unthinking evangelical, I sort of thought the same thing. I will, be, I will honor those people who fit my mode of thought as an evangelical Christian. Show me someone, though, who didn't agree with me or whatever, I wasn't about to honor them. No way, they were going to hell. They were wrong. I was right. Uh, But Peter says, honor all men, doesn't he? So I've had to repent, and I find myself free from the prison of thinking that I had the license to treat some men differently than others, or or as James warns us, to treat them preferentially. Uh, Then Peter adds, Love the brotherhood. So honor all men, love the brotherhood. And we know that our love is not limited just only to the brethren or believers. Jesus clearly taught to love our neighbor as ourselves. And the question was asked, who is our neighbor? And he gives the parable of the Good Samaritan. But Peter's specific instructions here is to love unconditionally the brethren or band of brothers with agapeo love. Uh, Then he says, after advising us to do that, So he says, honor all men. Then he kind of narrows it down with the brethren. He says, love, agapeo, the brethren. And then he says, fear God. That is a word in the Greek that suggests we hold him in awe, holiness and awe. And then he ends the passage with honor the king. And, uh, you know, it's really interesting that the Roman Empire was over. And I don't know, the king isn't capitalized there. So I don't think it's talking about Christ the king. I think it's really talking about those who are in magistrates like Paul talks about in Romans 14. So more and more I find more Christians who think they're exempt from this last directive and think that with insolence and mockery they can deride those who are placed in authority over us. That is not the Christian call. Peter says, honor the king. So there are the nuances to that passage. And then at verse 18, he goes and he starts talking to servants. And he says, servants, be subject to your masters with all fear not only to the good and gentle, but also to the fro word. The word servant here is oiketes, and it refers to people who live in your home and are cleaning your carpet, cleaning your bathrooms, cooking your food, making sure your clothes are prepared, a butler, a maid, a nanny, whatever the application. And But this isn't the only place that we hear about how servants should be. In Ephesians 6, 5, it says, servants be obedient to them that are your masters according to the f- flesh with fear and trembling. So they give advice, the, right, the apostles give advice to servants, people who are in occupations. But that second time that I just mentioned from Ephesians, Paul is talking about slaves. And he tells them to, to with fear and trembling, serve. So if you're a Christian and you're in slavery, the, the biblical advice is submit to your master and do what that master tells you to do. And if you're working in the household as a maid or a butler or something, it says if you're, if you're a master is froward. Now that, that word in the Greek is despotes. So it means if he's a despot, that means if he's a total jerk, it says you serve them, right? So be gentle and good, it says. Very interesting um, that the, the scripture is all full of doing good to those who do evil to us, turning the cheek to those who have hit the other one, forgiving those who don't deserve it, rendering good always to those who least deserve it. And that's what Peter reiterates here. Uh, and then he says, and do it to those who are froward, And that, that, that's a King, King James word which means uh, uh, scolesos, scolesos, scoleso, and it means bent, crooked, where we get scoliosis. If you are working for someone and they are bent, they are mean, and they are crooked, and they are not right with the rest of the world, Peter says, honor them. That's radical stuff. We get away from it sometimes, he then says at verse 19 and 20, for this is thankworthy. If a man for conscience toward God endures grief, suffering wrongfully, for what glory is it if when you are buffeted for your faults, that word means punched in the Greek. When you are punched in the face for your faults, you take it patiently. He says, where's the reward in that? You were the one who had the fault. Someone punches you for it, where's the reward? But he says, but if when you do well and suffer for it and take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. That's radical stuff. So fringy on how to be. Hard to live, Hard. very hard to do. I mean, our, our nature is to, to punch right back. But uh, Peter says, no. It's interesting that uh, Peter says that it's thankworthy because the word is charis in the Greek, and that means this is grace. That if you, having done well, and someone buffets you for doing well, and you take it with gentleness and goodness, he says, this is grace. That's, that's really a radical thing. And then he says, if for conscience toward God, if a person in their conscience toward God, it leads them to do this. That's a very subjective statement that he includes there. If you're led in your conscience toward God to be this way, he leaves it very open for you to decide. Um, Then he adds, but if when you are doing well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable. Finally, he wraps it up, and I'm going to cover what he wraps up with next week, and it's verse 21, 22, and 23. It's radical. It's one of the most radical things when you understand the Greek and what he tells you in it. And it's about following in Christ's footsteps and taking, doing what he did. And when we get to the Greek, I think it'll be interesting. It'll rock your world that did mine. Okay, we've been talking about Jesus in the Christian sense and about Jesus Christ in the LDS sense. It's been an interesting study. I've learned so much by going through it. And what's the hope in doing this? There's all sorts of angles at approaching the LDS Christian debate. We have the attack mode. We have the come-together mode. We have all the different modes. This one is to try to help them see that there are things that we agree with in the body and there are things that we are at odds with, but maybe not as much as we think. And it's trying to bring together not unity. We can't be unified in the faith with people who believe so vastly different on some key points. But we can see where we are unified in certain areas. And there's a lot more areas than I used to think. So uh, there are some things that are way outside the biblical pale, though, that Mormonism endorses. We've talked about the way we describe or see God as not so far off from each other because the LDS see a father, a son, and a Holy Spirit, as do Christians. There's a commonality. We can start there, right? But we're also able to say something the LDS have to let go for us to come together. And that is, they say that God the Father is in a body of flesh and bone. And we talked about that in past shows. It's got to go. Why does it have to go? Is it just my opinion? No, the, the, the scripture is clear. God is spirit. God is spirit. That completely contradicts the Bible. In talking about Jesus, we have shown that there's a number of ways that the LDS doctrines agree with the Christian. But at the same time, we also said that there's things that the LDS say that cannot be embraced. One, we mentioned last week, is that Jesus, along with all the rest of us, had a premortal existence. It's not that Jesus didn't have one, but the rest of us didn't have one. And it makes him our elder brother in LDS parlance. So why must this go? Because of what Jesus said. He said, I am from above, you are from beneath. He said that. And if he said that, we have to agree that that's true. And we said last week, if the LDS would admit to that, just that, that we are not from above like he came from above, if they could agree with that, we could start to see some things really tumble and fall. Uh, We also said, though, that the LDS are fine, actually, in some things like describing Jesus as the only begotten, that in their scripture, it is in complete harmony with the Bible On Jesus as the only begotten and I find that interesting so I'm beginning to see firsthand which we never really took seriously before much of Mormonism's troubles hear me out today come from their modern prophets seers and revelators interpretations of things and not always what Smith himself introduced that's something that we aren't really saying too much of in other words Smith certainly introduced a number of far out things I mean admittedly But uh, much of what he started with fits within the realm of biblical Christianity. It really does. It's not so far afield that it can't be accepted. But it's the interpretation of guys like McConkie who came along and demand that certain views be embraced uh, where Smith uh, never really uh, endorsed those things. Let me give you an example of this tonight in our discussion of Jesus. In modern Mormonism today, Jesus' pre-incarnate name, what has given personal pronoun name to a Mormon uh, in the Old Testament, is supposed to be Jehovah, okay? Mormons teach that Jesus' pre-incarnate name was Jehovah. In the LDS Temple film, uh, the pre-incarnate Jesus is addressed by God the Father, whose personal pronoun name, according to the Mormons, is Elohim, Elohim says Jehovah. And Jesus turns around and responds. So if there was a father named William on earth and he had a son named Jerry and said, Jerry, go mow the lawn, that's the same thing that you get in the LDS film. Elohim is the father's personal pronoun name. Jehovah to the Mormons is Jesus. As a result, the Mormons today believe that Jehovah in the Old Testament is always Jesus. All right? Now, just to be clear, the name Jehovah in the Old Testament uh, is written in four letters. That's where we get the word that we say is Jehovah. Other people pronounce it differently. Some people really use the the way they do it, but it's it's four letters only. It's either Y-H-V-H, no, so Y-H-W-H or J-H-V-H. Those those letters are what are in the biblical manuscripts. And when you see those four letters, that is written out as Jehovah, okay? Now, because the Jews had no vowels, they only had consonants for a long time, vowel markings were added later to the language. When they would come to Yahweh or Jehovah or one of those, they don't, we we don't know how to pronounce it. So when we say Jehovah, that is just, it's really made up. It might not be an E after the J. We don't know what's there, okay? So, uh, in the King James Version, J-H-V-H or Y-H-W-H is translated in the King James Version Old Testament, Lord, all uppercase, Lord all uppercase. Whenever you see that in the King James, if you went to the manuscripts, you would find the four uh, consonants, which are called the divine tetragrammaton, just to let you know. The divine tetragrammaton, those four consonants. Why is it called the divine tetragrammaton? Because the Jews believe this is God's name, God's name. And we don't even have the vowel markings to understand how to say it. So we're not going to even try to pronounce it. Okay. It's only four consonants. Well, the LDS say, no, not God the Father's name. It's Jesus' name. That's why Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. So as you read through the Old Testament as a Latter-day Saint, and you come to passages that use the Tetragrammaton, the LDS interpret that as Jesus in a pre-incarnate state working with the nation of Israel, with Jesus being the God of the uh, nation of Israel. In the great Jewish Shema, which is found in Deuteronomy 6.4, it says, hear, O Israel, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, all caps, that's Jehovah, okay? The Lord, our God, Elohim, is one Lord. So you would say, hear, O Israel, Jehovah, our Elohim, is one Jehovah, okay? That's, what, that's how you do Now, to Trinitarians, and frankly, to Oneness Pentecostals, or modalists even, when the Spirit of God moves or acts, or the Word of God moves or acts, or the Father moves or acts, they are all considered God, okay? So therefore, they can be known, called, or referred to as Jehovah or Yahweh. Uh, but to the LDS, Jehovah or Yahweh only and exclusively refers to Jesus in his pre-incarnate state specifically. Okay, Therefore, the LDS say Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. What is really interesting is when was this popularized? Was it Smith who did it? Was it Brigham Young? Orson Pratt? Seems like McConkie did it. According to what I've uh, discovered, it seems like McConkie's the guy. Let me explain why. In his epic fail of a book, Mormon Doctrine, which the LDS today say, nah, that's not, we don't accept that necessarily. used to be like the Bible, second Bible to Mormons. I mean, we all had Mormon doctrine. On page 392, McConkie says, quote, Christ is Jehovah. They are one and the same person, end quote, okay? Because of LDS teachings that there are three distinct persons in the Godhead, Uh, there's no mistaking that Jesus, according to McConkie name is Jehovah. It's not shared. It's his name. Add in the LDS uh, ceremony where it's clear that the father is called Elohim and Jesus name is Jehovah. Uh, we've got a modern understanding in today in Mormonism that those are their proper names. There's rumor that the Holy Spirit's name was Fred, but just a joke, just a joke. Okay. Kidding. Uh, The trouble with teaching that Jesus is the name Jehovah, has the name Jehovah, is multifold within Mormonism. And first, it's not supported by the Bible. Secondly, in early LDS doctrine, Jehovah was used as a generic for God, not for Jesus. In the LDS Book of Mormon, Jehovah is used twice, both times referring to Father In the LDS Doctrine and Covenants, uh, Jehovah once again is applied to the Father, not to Jesus. And finally, even modern day LDS scholars do not agree with with what McConkie pushed in his book. So interestingly enough, the first recorded instance of Jehovah being uniquely assigned the name Jesus doesn't appear until 1885. That's about 40 years uh, after Joseph Smith had died. So who's right? McConkie and what he started and which now is just, you know, is just ubiquitous within Mormonism. Well, Jesus is Jehovah. Or the five points I just brought out that make that claim problematic. Before we open up the phone lines, uh, which you got to tell me what the number is. um, Let me quickly take these points really quickly one by one and address them. First, this claim is not supported by the Bible. Okay, Psalms 2:7 says this, quote, "I will declare the decree, The Lord, LORD all caps, Jehovah, has said unto me, "Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee." To the LDS, it would be saying, "Jesus said, "Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee." That doesn't make sense, does it? Especially with the LDS view of the three persons in the Godhead. So that passage right there proves their idea that Jehovah is Jesus wrong. Uh, prophetically, Isaiah 53:10 says, Yet it pleased Jehovah to bruise him. Now, if Jehovah is God, that makes sense to bruise his son, uh, prophetically speaking. But if Jehovah is Jesus and it pleased Je- Jesus to bruise Jesus, that doesn't make any sense, does it? So, Isaiah 53.10 is another one. Deuteronomy 4.35 says, Unto thee it was shown that thou mightest know the Lord, that thou mightest know Jehovah. He is God. There is none else beside him. Now, to a Christian, we would understand that passage. But to a Latter-day Saint, they would have to say Jesus was God and it was talking about him prior to getting a body. So that one's a little bit problematic. So there's that first point. Secondly, in early LDS doctrine, Jehovah was used as a generic for God. Let me quote one of their own scholars, modern. Okay? His name's Boyd Kirkland. He says, quote, with the interchangeability of the roles of father and the son in earliest Mormon theology, it is impossible to identify specifically Joseph's first view, first view Jehovah retness. Gee, it's impossible to identify specifically Joseph's first few Jehovah references as either the Father or the Son. He goes on and says, however, after the identities of the Father and the Son were more carefully differentiated in Mormon theology around 1835, Joseph clearly began to use the divine name Jehovah to refer to the Father. Significantly, he never, specifically identified jehovah as jesus nor jehovah as the son of elohim okay and that's in the development of mormon doctrine page 37 so we have there a mormon scholar he's a faithful member pointing out this idea is a macaque it's it comes from his line of thought and it's just something that lds is more and more coming to the truth and seeking ways that they can stay lds they want to but maybe start to see things differently, maybe this will help. Third, in the LDS Book of Mormon, the term Jehovah is found twice. In both cases, they refer to God, not Christ. That's Second 2 Nephi 2.22 and in Moroni 10.34. And then fourth, in the LDS Doctrine and Covenants, Jehovah once again seems to be applied to the Father, not to Jesus. Listen to these examples. In a prayer given by Joseph Smith, recorded in Doctrine and Covenants 109.34, 42, 56, and 68, this is what Joseph says in a prayer. O Jehovah, have mercy on these people. That's in the Doctrine and Covenants. That's him praying. Now, the LDS say, you never pray to Jesus. You do not pray to Jesus. You pray to the Father in Jesus' name. Well, right there, we have Smith calling upon Jehovah, okay? And then he says, deliver thou, O Jehovah, we beseech thee. Now they could say, well, he's talking about Jesus there to deliver us. The LDS are emphatic again because of McConkie's influence that we pray to the Father, not through the Son. So either either he's praying to the Father and calling the Father Jehovah, and you can't say that's the Son's name, or Smith was praying to Jesus, and you can't say you can't. So one way or another, something has to give. In History of the Church, Volume 5, 127, Joseph Smith prayed, Praise again. This is what he says. Listen to his words. O thou, eternal, omnipotent, and omnipresent Jehovah, God, thou Elohim, that sittest, as saith the psalmist, enthroned in heaven, look down upon thy servant Joseph at this time, and let faith on the name of thy son Jesus Christ be conferred upon him. So in that prayer, Joseph prays to Jehovah, clearly says he's God, Elohim, and even refers to his son. And yet today, the modern prophets, with all their inspiration, have changed that. These things can be used to help LDS see you're not playing on a level field here. You've got some, you've got some holes out there that you're going to trip and break your ankle. if you. And finally, LDS scholars don't even agree with McConkie's stance. Uh, Lowell Benyon was one. Um, Old Testament professor Keith Maservi was another, he wrote in an article in June of 2002 in the Ensign, and he said, there are at least three places in the Old Testament where Jehovah is not speaking of Jesus, but of the Father. Uh, And then, of course, there's Boyd Kirkland, who I've also quoted. So it seems that there's some wiggle room in this and where Latter-day Saints can edit McConkie and those like him out. If they start editing him out of the picture and start saying, wait a second, that that's going to help allow for some wiggle room for them to start maybe seeing things some other way and bring them around to a more biblical view that in many cases Joseph Smith actually had. Professor Harrell, BYU, he puts it this way, quote, The modern use of Jehovah as an exclusive designation for the premortal Christ is a convention made official through a doctrinal exposition titled quote, Christ as the Father and the Son, published by the LDS First Presidency in 1916. Of course, that predates McConkie. Harrell adds this, quote, this use, however, talking about Jehovah to Christ, is a 20th century development that did not exist in early Mormonism, neither is it evident in LDS scripture. So I know that we pull things out from the Christians and we say, this is problematic, we should address this, let's clean up our own house. Here are some things that on the same side that the LDS need to do as well. These disparities can be seized by the LDS people today who are seeking for truth and be used to help them draw into the uh, cleaner, purer aspects of the faith and uh, that once held biblical water. All right, let's open up the phone lines. 801-590-8413. 590-8413. We have an old uh, caller on the phone, Mark from Ireland. He's returned from a sabbatical of some sort. We'll come to him in just a minute after this.
2: Like a growing tree, We've gone through some stages in our approach to doing church. For the past few years, we've remained at campus, Christian anarchists, meaning to prayerfully understand scripture. After everything has been said and done, we find this last acronym far too limiting. After all, he is probably the only Christian anarchist in North America. So after 10 years, campus, today, and hopefully for the decades to come, should be known as Christian, meeting to prayerfully understand scripture. Come as you are.
1: Before we go to Mark, we'll get him in a second. I just want to remember, uh, remind you there's a new book out, uh, Knife to a Gunfight, Misinterpreting the Purpose and Place of the New Testament. Just to give you a sample of some of the chapters in the book, uh, I love the first, shoot, uh, t- take uh, the dogma out and shoot it in the head. And then there is also uh, uh, five solas, a- 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 an explanation about the five solas, uh, subjective points of view, um, there are a dating revelation, but not marrying her. One of my favorite. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and there is a thank you, sola scriptura, in the last chapter. Uh, as you can see, I have some issues with that. But anyway, knife to a gunfight. Uh, give it some consideration. We'd love for you to read it and to call back and talk about it. Let's go to Mark from Ireland. Marcus. <laughs>
3: How are you, Mr. McCraney?
1: I'm doing well. How you doing, my friend? Long time no here.
3: Well, I'm not that old. I want to um, I want to kind of get that out of the way. Just, you know, not not that old. How um, old are you, Mark? Um, old enough, son. Old enough. He doesn't
1: answer anything. He answers All right. nothing. Um,
3: I did want to call last week, um, particularly <laughs> when I heard the email about Evan, um, the one that was titled, Growing Up Gay in the Mormon Church. Ah. And, um... This is something that's very, very close to my heart, because I have a very good friend of mine um, who is gay, and I was the first person he came out to. And the, oh, my goodness, the pain that this guy was carrying around for a long, long time. Um, I, I, I really didn't know what to say to him, except to reassure him that I didn't believe that if, you, if you're gay... Um, and this is a a real powerful word, that you're not abrogated to God, that you're not cancelled, or that you're not voided out um, by God. I mean, can you imagine saying to one of your kids that they're cancelled in your eyes? Yeah. Is that love? Is that that the agape that you've been talking about for the last couple of weeks? I don't think so. And it's not the... It's not... The, the, the God, the Father in heaven that I've come to know and understand. Um, and to Evan. If, I, I, and and you, you can learn this very, very quickly as I did. If you do have love in your heart and you have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you can go to him and you can cry Hosanna in his name, just as I did. And you will receive comfort and peace and strength and love. Amen. And. Would you believe I have favorite scriptures? I don't either. Um, but 1 Corinthians 13, the, I think it's, it's known as the hymn of Paul. It talks about charity or the pure love. Um, so, Evan, if, if, if you're watching or if you ever get to, to see this, have a look at First Corinthians 13. Um, it, it has helped me so many times. Um, and you're not in any way canceled or rescinded by God just because you're you're a man on earth, just like us.
1: It's awesome, Mark, I really appreciate the insights.
3: Yeah, well, hang on, not so fast, Mr. McCraney,
1: not so fast. I thought we could escape some of the smarminess, but it doesn't seem like that's so, does it?
3: Well, this will test the memory of your listening
1: audience, you see.
3: Just like last year, Mr. McCraney, sir, what did you not do last week?
1: (laughs) What did I not do last week?
3: Just like last year,
1: what did you not do it last week? <laughs> I don't know, Mark. Tell me. Oh, no. Oh, did, yeah. I, did I skip St. Patrick's Day? Again. <laughs> <laughs> mm,
3: yes, it's hilarious. So um, <laughs> just like last year, I will now bail hey, you out.
1: Did you like, celebrate the 4th of July over there?
3: Well, don't get bogged down in detail. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, tap this little bit of audio onto last week's show, and nobody will know the difference.
1: <laughs> okay? You got it, my friend. <clears throat> okay. Are, are we done?
3: Wait, 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 wait. Hey, this is Sean McCrane. Forget about it. And me and all my crew here at Heart of the Matter, we want to wish you and all your people a happy St. Patrick's Day. Forget about
1: it. Are we talking about Tony Soprano here?
3: Is that not your accent?
1: <laughs> if it is, I am really embarrassed.
3: Um, that's all I have.
1: Uh, I think um, I thought you, I, I know you believe you had it down, but that sounds more like a, a, a mobster. Right. Right. My brother, um, we're going to let you go. We love you.
3: Yeah, uh, OK, I'll work on the accent for next time I call.
1: I'll work right. on mine, too.
3: Right. <laughs> good luck.
1: <laughs> yeah, thanks, See, bye. Uh, all right. We have an email from a young woman who wants seriously to remain anonymous. LDS grew up inactive. When she was 28 years old, uh, started to think for herself. And then she met a man, and introduced him to the missionaries. They were baptized. Uh, he was baptized, committed to the Mormon life. And she says that meant we married in the temple, had four children in six years, served as Relief Society presidency, elders quorum. She began to read literature that was not church approved and uh, when her relationship with mormonism fell apart her relationship with her husband fell apart as well and they divorced and she says i'm writing now because i recently lost my dad and little brother to suicide and in the last few months i have felt a deep need to reconnect to things of the spirit afterlife salvation understanding forgiveness i'm driven to this in places of my soul i've never felt before hoping you can relate Then she asks a question which we get quite often, and I just want you to think about this. You have a tender soul like this, okay? They've come out of a religion that has messed them up. She's she's gotten her library card, as Reed says. She's done some research. She's served in the LDS church. She's had some loss, a suicide, and then she asks us, I live in this area I need a religious organization, and I need a reference of a good Christian church I can go to. Okay? Now, I just want you to think about it. We get emails from people who say, I left the LDS church, and I went to this church, and it was doing this, and I went to this one, and it was doing that. How come my pastor is constantly talking about tithes, tithes, tithes? They left one form of bondage. What do you say? You know, we so criticized for uh, trying to address this. But remember, our ministry is about Mormonism. And what would you say to these people? They're like little uh, scared deer in the headlights. And they're saying, I want to know God. Where should I go to church, Sean? We well, you say, oh, just go down to uh, the Calvary Chapel. You know, we say they teach the Bible. Well, I've discovered that's not always the case. And I discovered that there you find things that, Tithe is really pushed, and depending on the Calvary Chapel, I'm not saying they're bad, you know, great believers. But the, the whole point is, we would have to write like a half of a book to someone like this to say, look, it's not about the church. You have to understand this. It is about your relationship to Christ. The church will disappoint you. And if not the church people in it, And if not the people in it, something is going to happen. But Christ does not. And it's so hard to get this through people's minds who come out of Mormonism and are seeking for some sort of brick and mortar building to walk into and relate to God through an institution. So uh, it breaks my heart. I I wrote uh, this person back separately, but I just wanted to share that with you. Uh, This is from Adam. I need help uh, getting my name off the church records My bishop has been less than polite. We're getting this more and more uh, from the site. We haven't really talked about it. And I think we're having a problem on one of our sites that gives you an example letter. But listen, if you send a letter to Salt Lake City, they will send it right back to your local ecclesiastical leader. So the key things, just to cover it now, is to say, I don't want a waiting period. I don't want a visit from my local leaders. I don't want to do anything but have my name taken off, and I want that done as soon as possible and evidence that it's happened. And that generally, to the bishop, stake president, of your stake and ward, ought to get things done. And sometimes, like in cer- certain places, the bishop will act like he doesn't know what to do. he go to his uh, superior, the stake president. he say, I've asked that this be done, and you have to kind of put a fee- uh, fire under them sometimes, but that's what I can say. Uh, praise God, Sean, I am reading the New Testament and feeling the promise. I like how she says that. I am, uh, not, not the feeling part so much, but understanding the promise. Because the book is full of promises. Uh, uh, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Hoped for, the promise. And I love how she says that. I'm understanding grace a little better, and she says she enjoys this book. So I just wanted to say that's from Sue. And from a woman who was Christian and became LDS, my name is Y. I just wanted to say love heart of the matter. I left the LDS church after I realized it's teaching me false doctrine. I was brought up a Christian. My father was a Sunday school teacher and I went to Sunday school regularly. As a grown-up, I wanted to understand my faith. So I started looking at different churches. I was led to believe that the Mormon church was true even though I never had an answer to the prayer. I was told to doubt my doubts. But before my faith, I fell for the package hook, line, and sinker. I never stopped reading the Bible, though I was told I should be reading the Book of Mormon. I questioned everything, af- because after I was baptized, it all fell apart. I'm out of it now, so is my fiance and my daughter. I pray every day that Jesus will forgive me for listening and, uh, to false doctrine. Uh, Jesus forgave you long ago. And he knew that you would listen to false doctrine just like I do and everybody else. But he loves you and he's there to lead you. Uh, why? So uh, leave the brainwashing behind, move forward. Also had a woman say, uh, Patricia uh, wrote, John, Sean, if you read John chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17, uh, this came, you came to mind as I was reading them there, uh, When you say there are not three persons, but that God has three manifestations, those chapters come to mind as they amazingly describe the distinct interaction between the three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I haven't researched it yet. I did. I looked at it a little bit. In those four chapters, Father is mentioned 43 times. Son, or Jesus referring to himself, is mentioned 69 times. Pneuma, or Spirit, is mentioned four times. And listen, I have no issue at all. I absolutely embrace there being a Father and a Son and a Holy Spirit. My issue comes to the term man-made trinity, and I just believe that God would have given us that term if he wanted to be known as that. And I think he wants to be known as a Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so I just don't agree with it. And I'm not going to use a man-made term to describe a God who is not given himself that name. And people get mad at me and I don't pretend to understand it. I have a very serious problem with the personage of the Holy Spirit, but I could be wrong. But bottom line, don't tell me I'm not a believer or a good Christian because I reject the the idea of Trinity and the title. I, I have that right. And I'm going to go before God and he's going to either say it's all right, or he's going to take some of my rewards, you know, but, you know, I think this has to be available to people who are coming out of different faiths, who don't necessarily see the creedal trinity the way others do. I'm not saying creedal trinitarians are wrong. They may be completely right or whatever, but I want that right to be able to reject something that men have made up. I belong to a religion long enough that a man made up, that I'm not going to buy into another institution that makes up its terms. And I know all the arguments, well, it doesn't say this, it doesn't say that, but we use the term to communicate. I'm not going to. I'm going to use the Father when it says the Father. I'm going to use the Son when it says the Son. And I'm going to use the Spirit when it says the Spirit. And if I can't do that as a Christian, well, then call me a follower of Jesus rather than a Christian. I don't know. All right, and we have this from uh, Chris H. (coughs) He says, He's a, a PhD student in uh, uh, just finished up his master's in philosophy and Christian apologetics, and he is writing his thesis on the ontological inadequacies of Mormon doctrine. And he writes and says, "I am writing because I have great trouble finding LDS source that definitively declare what they believe." He says, yesterday I reached out to the Fair Mormon website. I asked simple questions. And uh, I was interrogated as to my personal life, religious commitments, schooling, and the warrant for my questions. The volunteer who responded to my question was Lewis Midgley, apparently a professor emeritus at BYU in political science department. And it was exactly what happens on your show when you get an LDS member calling and you ask why uh, they left the church. They ask you why you left the church, what happened to you, how are your finances, Tell me your sins after dodging all the simple questions that you've asked. And it's a unique uh, thing in, uh, in Mormonism, and those of you who have been LDS know this, that there is very, they have an argument on both sides of the fence. They have doctrines presented on both sides of the fence. And so they can, they can actually be answer one question one way, and that same question an almost opposite way, and be right. Because they pull from a vast body of speeches and thoughts on things. And so they're able, it's a very slippery way to to maneuver and that way they protect themselves. Also, the doctrine is constantly, uh, not the doctrine, but the way they uh, explain the doctrine is constantly morphing. The doctrine itself remains uh, pretty set uh Carol b lee says the way to know mormon doctrine is through what the scripture says he says that as a prophet said that but i don't know if that's the case because it seems like popular opinion and culture within mormonism defines doctrine better than what is written in their canon so don't know what to tell you except for good luck nothing else no more callers i don't know how much time we have left but there's a just a raging party waiting for linda cassidy here i mean there's party hats Noisemakers, seven kegs, 20 bottles of tequila. Linda's up on the table. Get down, Linda. We're coming. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter.
0: I'm on a ride, going nowhere. I am an existential cowboy on the And I won't be coming out I'm going in This man's awake A storm's arising The dawn's waiting Till a hundred monkeys know And I can feel the light fill monkey's dead